Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we continue our worship in the Word, we're going to pray, but I also want to let you know next week we'll have a special time of worship because we're going to be having a baptism, and so we want to welcome you especially for that. Baptism is a wonderful blessing that reminds us of what Christ does in our hearts and our lives the moment we trust in Him as our Savior and our Lord. Well, as we continue on our worship, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for just this sweet time of worship to gather with your people to worship the name of Jesus that is above every name. Father, as we continue our worship in the word, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts and minds for it. Whether, wherever we've been last week, wherever we're going to be this next week, we pray in this moment we can give you our undivided attention, that you would instruct us in your word, that it would be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you would make us. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, he tells a story in one of his books uh, about a, the frontier days when a horse was startled, took off running, bolted in another direction with uh, a wagon behind it and a little boy inside of it. Well, seeing that this little boy was in danger, a young man risked his life and caught up to the horse and, and stopped the wagon from going any further and saved this little boy's life. Well, the sad part of the story is that this little boy grew up uh, to be a lawless man, to be a ruthless criminal. And one day, that little boy grew up to be a young man and stood before a judge in which he was going to be sentenced for a very serious crime. Well, as that young man looked up, he recognized the judge. The judge was actually the gentleman who had saved him years prior when he was a little boy. And on the basis of that experience, he pled for mercy from the judge. Well, those pleas for mercy were met by the judge's response who said, Young man, years ago I was your savior. Today I am your judge and I'm here to sentence you to be hanged. This morning, I want to take some time to remind you that Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a suffering servant. He came from heaven to earth to die on a cross, a sinner's death, in our place, on our behalf. He came the first time as a Savior, but the Bible also teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back not as the Savior of the world, but the judge of the world. He's not coming back as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king to judge the world and to right every wrong. And because of that, we need to be ready and we need to be prepared. This morning, I'd like to invite you to the letter of 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in the first three verses together as we're going to take some time to talk about the certainty of the return of Jesus Christ. How we can be certain that Jesus Christ is coming back again, and therefore how we can be prepared for his coming and eagerly anticipate it when it comes. As you make your way there in your Bible, 2 Peter 3, chapter 3 is a chapter that's all about the day of the Lord. In the first seven verses, we're going to take some time to talk about the day of the Lord and why we should expect it, because a large part of the day of the Lord has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning, though, is not just to lead you through a reading of God's Word and to teach God's Word, but my prayer is to whet your appetite a bit on the subject. 
My prayer is that you would not just be content leaving today having heard about these first seven verses, but that your appetite would be so wet that you could not wait before you get home to read the rest of the text. Because while this week we're going to talk about the day of the Lord and why we should expect it, in the weeks ahead we're going to talk about the day of the Lord and the details that surround it. Have you ever wondered what's going to happen in the end? What does the Bible say about the day of the Lord? We're going to talk about the details of it and the timing that surrounds it, but we're also going to talk about how to properly prepare for it. So this morning, if you can think of individuals who might benefit from the teaching and the reading of God's word, maybe it's an opportunity in the next few weeks to invite someone to church or to send them a message as we get to take some time to talk about the day of the Lord. But this morning, we're going to be in the first seven verses as we talk about why we can be certain of it and why we should expect it. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Let me read verse 10, the beginning of it, just for context. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, we're going to take some time to talk about the day of the Lord and why we should expect it. How can you and I be certain that Jesus Christ is coming back again so that we can be ready for it? And so that we can live in light of it, anticipating it very eagerly. How can we be certain of Christ's return? In the first two verses, we see, number one, because of the provision of his word. All throughout scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New, we get to hear about the prophecy that Jesus did not just come the first time, but Jesus is coming a second time. And we're going to talk more about it in a moment, but isn't it interesting to note that there are about... Scholars will say about 250 verses that talk about the first coming of Jesus, but eight times that amount that refer to the second coming of Christ. And if that much of Scripture is dedicated to the second coming of Christ, and if that much of Scripture is dedicated to the day of the Lord, should we not pay attention to it, be ready for it, expect it, and live in light of it? First, he provides the provision of his word as assurance that he gives us. The manner in which he provides the provision of his word to these believers is first by calling them beloved. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with Peter turning to the readers, turning to fellow believers, turning to those who are in churches, who are spread abroad, and says, beloved. Peter calls them beloved for a couple reasons. Number one, he calls them beloved because he wants to remind them of their identity in Christ. 
He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ and whose they belong to. And this is a helpful reminder for all of us because you and I need this reminder on a regular basis that we are beloved by God and we are beloved by fellow believers. First, we need the reminder as Peter reminds them that we are beloved by God, that if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, if you have received Christ into your life and and trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, this is a helpful reminder that all sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. When God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your blemishes. He doesn't see your imperfections. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and you are beloved by God. We're reminded that when we trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord to forgive our sins, and this is something we need to be reminded of again and again, that we are justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared to be in a right standing before God because God doesn't see your sin or your blemishes, past, present, or future. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And what you and I need to be reminded of as believers, if we are genuine in our profession of faith, is that we are beloved by God. But secondly, that we are beloved by one another. You know, in some translations, it translates the term agape toy uh, not to the extent it should be. It translates it as dear friends. But can I tell you this morning, as fellow believers in Christ, we are more than dear friends. We are beloved one of another, or we should be. If there's one of us that says, you know, that's a wonderful idea, but I don't feel that kind of love for my fellow brothers or sisters in Christ. But it's this idea that perhaps if I were to come to you today and introduce to you a biological brother or sister that you've never met, and I tell you this is your brother or this is your sister, you never got to meet them, there's a special bond that you have between each other, even though you've never met them. You want to get to know them. You want to talk with them. Why? Because they're your brothers or sisters. Let me tell you, church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And so we should see each other in that light that as I am beloved of God, you are beloved of God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And we need to remind each other of that often. So Peter calls them beloved, reminding them of their identity in Christ. But secondly, he calls them beloved because he wants to remind them and encourage them in their faith and their trust in Jesus. I want to remind you, chapter 3 flows out of the context of chapter 2. And while we were in chapter 2, Peter, in love, has been warning these believers about the dangers of false teachers. Now, when we think of 2 Peter, a lot of times we think of false teachers because so much of chapter 2 has to do with it. But this letter is not written to warn false teachers. This is a letter written to the beloved, written to genuine followers of Jesus Christ, warning them about the danger of false teachers. And we know how dangerous they are. If you read chapter 2, they're described in quite unflattery terms, harsh terms. They're described as those who bring in secretly and deceptively destructive heresies. 
Ooh, they were described as those who are irrational beasts who deserve to be caught and destroyed. They're dogs who return to their vomit because they love the vomit of their sensuality and their sin. They indulge the flesh rather than walking in the spirit. And like pigs who have been washed but return to the mud, they follow their instincts rather than walk in the spirit because their sinful behavior ultimately exposes their counterfeit Christianity. And after Peter takes some time out of love to warn these believers about the danger of false teachers, Peter now turns and says, beloved. And the reason he turns to the reader and says, beloved, is because he says, don't pay attention to them. Pay attention to the word of God. Because these false teachers, what they were denying is the coming of Christ again. They were denying their accountability before the Lord Jesus Christ who will hold them to account. And Peter says, don't pay attention to the world and those who walk in accordance with it, including those false teachers, but pay attention to the word, the word of God, the teaching of the prophets, the teaching of the apostles who have been sent by the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention to his word that gives us the assurance of his second coming so that we can live in light of it, so that we can eagerly anticipate it. So he calls them beloved as he introduces them to the provision of God's word and the reminder of it. Secondly, he states the purpose for why he writes. He says this in verse 1, I now write to you the second epistle. What was the first epistle that he wrote? What was the first letter? Probably 1 Peter. First and 2 Peter, he states the purpose, and in both of which, this is his purpose, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter says the reason this letter is written to you and the previous letter is written to you is so that your mind would be stimulated, your pure mind would be stimulated to remember the truths of God's word. I pray this is my purpose as a pastor and teacher of the word. I pray that this is the purpose of a small group leader, someone who gets to lead another spiritually in the truths of God's word. I pray that this is the desire of every parent in the room as you have an opportunity to instruct your children in the truths of God's word, that your desire and purpose as you talk to them about God and his word is to stimulate their minds to recall the truths of scripture, to remember the truths of scripture. Now, you come to church or you join a small group, not necessarily to learn something new if you know about Jesus and you're grounded in the truths of Scripture, but to be reminded of it. I mean, no, there are weeks when you're going through difficult or hard times where you need to be reminded of the truth of God's Word. You need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. You need to be reminded of the hope that you have in Jesus. And the reason we come and gather or we gather in our studies or we read the Bible in devotional time is not just so that we would learn new things, but we would be reminded of the truth that we've already been grounded in. Peter turns to these beloved of God and says to them, I'm writing to stir you up by way of reminder. Stir up your pure minds. When he says your minds are pure, he's saying they are free from deception and free from corruption. In other words, he tells them that their thinking is not shaped by the world. Their thinking is shaped by the word. How easy is it for us to think like the world? 
to wake up and forget that our number one purpose in life is to glorify God and serve Him. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how easy it is to think that we are in this world to please ourselves, to get ahead and to pursue success in terms of how this world defines it, when the greatest success that we can pursue is to be in the center of the will of God in accordance with the word of God. And so he describes their minds as pure, free from deception, free from corruption. But the reason he wants to remind them is so that they'll stay that way. Oh, how easy it is when we have pure minds to be led astray by worldly thinking. That's why it's so important that we read the word of God consistently. Uh, In Psalm, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. You know, this past week in hoop camp, we had 47 of the over 119 campers who came memorize Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You know, some, that's a few verses. If you've ever tried to memorize it, it can be difficult, but boy, is it worth it. Some of these children don't even know what they're exactly memorizing, but what a wonderful thing where they have downloaded the truth of God's word in their hearts. And as God allows that word to become relevant and they realize the truth therein, that they would trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If there's a verse to memorize, that's one to download into your heart and mind. And what the psalmist says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. As we grow older, the time when we need to memorize Scripture becomes more necessary. We need to hide the Word of God in our heart, even though it may feel difficult at times, because it's worth it and it keeps our minds pure. And so he tells them, this is my purpose in writing, to stimulate your pure hearts by way of reminder. What do they need to be reminded of? What do you and I need to be reminded of? What God's word has to say about all things, but specifically what God's word has to say about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says this, that you may be mindful, that you might call to mind, that you might remember, that you might recall Now, some of us this morning are thinking, you know, I don't spend much time in the minor prophets or the major prophets. I don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Well, listen, this is telling us the Old Testament's pretty relevant. The Old Testament has prophecies of old that declare the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that prepares us and readies us and allows us to to with with eagerness anticipate the return of Christ so that we can live in light of it. So we should read and study the whole counsel of God. We should read the Old Testament like the New. And what he's saying to us, don't just read it, recall it, and remember it. Remember the words spoken by the holy prophets. Not just the words spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. 
So we are invited to call to mind the teaching of the prophets, the teaching of the apostles, the commandments of Jesus Christ given through the apostles. I wanted to read to you just a few scriptures as we take time to remember the teaching of the prophets. In 2 Peter, earlier in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, we are told how these prophets recorded the truths of God's word being moved by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any, interp- is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's why we should pay attention to the Old Testament prophets. In Jude 14 to 15, it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In Daniel 7, 13 to 14, and we could read many scriptures. Let me leave it to this. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. When you get to hear the prophet's teaching concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, it should excite you. It should cause your heart to be filled with joy because we live in a broken world. We live in a culture that seems to be going from bad to worse, but thanks be to God that there is a God who sits on the throne of heaven and he's coming back in glory and he's going to judge the quick and the dead and he's going to right every wrong. That brings hope to our hearts. People sometimes ask, what's the relevance of the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord? It has every relevance because it impacts how you live in light of it. It impacts how you raise your family, how you raise your children, how you interact with your spouse, how you consider the fact that you share your faith with others as you have opportunity to do so. So remember the teaching of the prophets. Remember the teaching of Christ, the commandments that he gave. And sometimes folks ask, what commandment are we talking about when we're talking about the commandments of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who spoke through his apostles? Well, are we talking about the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? I'd like to suggest he's talking about the whole of the commandments of Christ, namely that we turn from our sin and turn to Christ and receive him into our life, making him Lord and Savior. It's interesting to note that Jesus is described here as he's the one who gives the commands through the apostles, but he's described as both the Savior and the Lord. Let me tell you this this morning. You can't have him as your Savior if he's not your Lord. If you're going to trust him to forgive your sins, the expectation is that you surrender your whole life to him, that you give him complete control of your life. God doesn't want 99% of your heart and mind. He wants all of it. 
God is a benevolent dictator, if I could describe it that way. He's a, he wants complete control, and people think, well, if I give my life to God, I'm not going to be free to do what I want and to indulge the flesh, but you will be more free than you ever imagined because you're not free to do whatever you want. You're free to do what is right. As long as you are in bondage to sin, you are not free to say no to it, but in Christ, there is true freedom. In, Luke, in John 5.39, Jesus said this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Everything points to Jesus. Luke 24.27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Remember the commands of Christ to turn from your sin and receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord, remember the teaching of the apostles. If I can go back to chapter 1 in 2 Peter, verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the apostle Peter and the other apostles speaking. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What gives us assurance that Christ is coming back again? He's coming back as a conquering king, as a judge who will right every wrong. It's the provision of his word. Pay close attention to the teachings of the prophets. Pay close attention to the commandments of Jesus Christ. Pay close attention to the teaching that the apostles have shared as they are sent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I can have the assurance that Jesus is coming back again and the day of the Lord is imminent. The word imminent means that it could happen at any moment. If I could give us just a few takeaways in light of just these first couple verses, number one, it's pay attention to what God's word has to say about the second coming. It's important. One commentator shares this. People are often surprised to learn that references to the second coming outnumber references to the first coming by a factor of eight to one. Isn't that amazing? Scholars have identified 1,845 different biblical references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, no less than 17 books mention Christ's return, the New Testament authors speak of it in 23 of 27 books. Seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament refer to his return. In other words, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is coming back to the earth. We need to pay attention to what the word of God has to say about it. Secondly, as we've said earlier, consider the relevance of the second coming of Jesus Christ to your life. If Jesus Christ is coming back and we will give an account before him and his return is imminent, it could happen at any moment. That should influence the way you relate to your spouse, the way you raise your children, the way you love your neighbor, the way you go out and recognize the urgency of letting people know that Jesus is coming back and they need to get right with him. That there is a holy God who sits upon his throne in heaven and the reason he hasn't come back is just because of his mercy. And we're not promised tomorrow and we need to be urgent about telling people about Jesus. I shared this before that Sunday sermons are sometimes Friday night devotionals for the kids in our house. <laughs> I got to share this text with our girls 
uh, on Friday, and as I was talking to them about it, I was saying, isn't it interesting that you guys send letters, sometimes birthday greetings to other people? Well, Peter, he sent letters to the churches, and he prepared them for the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And I asked them, are you, are you ready? They got to spend a whole week in hoop camp, you know, learning about Jesus. And so I got to talk to them about it. They got to memorize a verse. I said, well, what do you think about it? Are you ready to receive the gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers you? And they both told me, we're not ready yet. And I said, well, let me put it this way. Let's say I had a gift and it was your birthday. And I said, you can choose to open this gift today and enjoy it and receive it or you can wait till next week or a couple weeks from now. Are you going to open this gift today or are you going to open it in the next couple weeks? They said, we're going to open it today. We're not waiting around. But they shared they're not yet ready. So we're still praying for them. But what a reminder for me to say, I'm not promised tomorrow, and these girls need to know the truth of the gospel message of Jesus so that whether I'm here or not, if something happens to me, they'll know the truth. And as God works through the word and the spirit in their hearts, in his due time, they're gonna come to faith in Jesus as their savior and as their Lord. The coming of Christ is incredibly relevant to our lives. Thirdly, uh, allow your... Thirdly, allow your thinking to be shaped by the word, not the world. May your mind be pure, free from deception and corruption in this world. Uh, Two ways. First, be reminded the word of God is trustworthy, reliable, and true. Think about it. 250 prophecies that speak of the first coming of Christ And eight times that amount, over 1,800 when it comes to the second coming of Christ. God's word is trustworthy, reliable, and true. When God speaks, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank. You can be assured that it is true. Other people, even myself, I can talk to you and I might disappoint you from time to time, but not the word of the Lord. Secondly, surround yourself with the right influences. There are some folks who will come to you and say, yes, I'm a Christian. I am a believer. But you know when their thinking is shaped more like the world than the word. My prayer is that you and I would surround ourselves more and more with those who can counsel us, not with the worldly thinking, but with the word of God that will transform our life as a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. In In Psalm 1, it talks about how we are to to walk in the counsel, not of the ungodly, but walk into the counsel of those who know the truth of God's word. And so that is our encouragement this morning. So first, how do you and I have assurance and certainty that Jesus Christ is coming back again? The provision of his word. Secondly, the prediction of scoffers. The prediction of scoffers. The fact that there will be scoffers who will mock. The fact that there will be scoffers who will ridicule. The fact that you believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, died, rose again in newness of life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is coming back again in glory should not shake your faith. It should strengthen it. Why? Because Jesus predicted it. So whenever you run into scoffers, you shouldn't get discouraged. You should be encouraged because they are fulfilling prophecy. Uh, The text goes on to say in verse 3, knowing this first, you need to know this of utmost importance. 
As the day of the Lord draws near, as the coming of Christ gets closer, this is how we can be certain of his return, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. What are scoffers? Scoffers are mockers, those who ridicule. They are individuals who treat lightly that which God treats seriously. They were present all throughout history in the days of Noah. There were scoffers who scoffed and ridiculed and mocked Noah, man of righteousness, building an ark. Scoffing at the fact, would God really judge us and wipe us out with a flood? There were scoffers, mockers, and those who ridiculed in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is God really going to send fire and brimstone down to burn us alive? There are scoffers in every generation. And whether, you've not, whether or not you've met scoffers or not, I want you to know they're around today. And if you want to find them, go to a local location. We talked about CF was at the fair. I'm sure there are plenty of scoffers when you head out to the county fair and share about Jesus. Go out to the University of Oregon. Go out to Mohawk Boulevard and just start teaching and preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the scoffers will come out. So the reality of scoffers is evidence that we are living in the last days. And so Peter says this, in verse 3, knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. The question we get asked a lot is, are we living in the last days? How do we know we're living in the last days? You watch the news, you hear about things going on in the world. Well, the Bible teaches the last days refer to the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so are we living in the last days? The answer is yes. The next question is, well, how close are we to the end times when Jesus comes back? Because there seems to be things going on. We're, we're, we're closer now than we've ever been in history. And the next event on the prophetic calendar seems to be the rapture that will precede the seven-year tribulation in which God will pour out his wrath on the earth. And so the question is, are we living in the last of the last days, potentially, but what you need to know is we are living in the last days because we are living in the time period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And so you see that in Hebrews 1-2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So Hebrews 1-2 Acts 2, 15 to 17, if you remember on the day of Pentecost, they began to speak in these languages that others could understand concerning the gospel. Peter gives an explanation because people are saying they're drunk, and Peter says this, these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour, third, third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last Days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And part of Joel 2 is being fulfilled there as they speak in these languages on the day of Pentecost. So yes, we are living in the last days. And the evidence of that in every generation throughout church history, between the first and the second coming of Christ, there have been scoffers and they will continue to grow in number. And so when you see scoffers, know that you are living in the last days. But why do they scoff? Well, verse 3 goes on to tell us why. Knowing this verse, the scoffers will come in the last days. Is it because of their intellect? 
Is it because of their great wisdom? Do they scoff because they see things through a scientific worldview and theirs is greater than a biblical worldview? No, the text goes on to tell us, walking according to their own lusts. So the reason they scoff is not because it's an intellectual problem. The reason they scoff is because it's a moral problem. There will be folks who will come and tell you, I can't believe these things. I can't believe that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it in six literal days. I can't believe that God has intervened throughout history, judged the world through a flood or judged Sodom and Gomorrah with hell, with fire and brimstone. But in the end, the problem is not a problem of intellect or logic. The problem is a problem of morality. And the reason they are scoffers the reason they mock and ridicule is because they love their sin and indulge the flesh. Here's the struggle here. You might have a logical problem. You might have some questions that you need answered. But in the end, the real question is, are you willing to submit and surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Because God wants complete control of your life. And when it all comes down to it, the scoffers will tell you, it's not an intellectual problem. I love my sin too much. And I will not allow anyone to tell me how to live my life. That is the struggle. This morning, if there's anyone here who is struggling with taking that next step of faith and trusting in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, you might have some logical questions, some intellectual questions. Press into those. Ask those questions. Talk to folks who know the word and can answer the word. But in the end, you can have all of your, answer, your questions answered and to the point that you don't have any more questions or you might think of more. But in the end, it all comes down to, are you willing to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give him 100% of your heart, your life, and your mind and say, I'm all in? I'm a sinner. I'm in need of salvation. I've tried to do things my way. I'm going to do things your way. These are scoffers who love to continue to walk in their sin. And so the text in verse 4 goes on to tell us this is what they say in saying, where is the promise of is coming. They say, what evidence is there that Jesus is coming back again? Now, this was early on after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now we're 2,000 years later, and there are some, even today, I'm, heard, I'm sure you've had conversation with scoffers who have asked the same question, where is the promise of his coming? And this is their explanation. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they, were as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, what they deny is that there is a God who created heaven and earth and everything in it and is involved in his creation. And he will hold his creation accountable as a righteous judge. They say, even in the days of our forefathers, you see no evidence of the world being intervened by some supernatural force, even this idea of God. And verse 5 gives us the explanation why. For they willfully forget. And that's what you need to pay attention to. They willfully forget. It's not that you don't know. that. It's not that the heavens don't declare the glory of God. In Romans 1, you see that all are without excuse. 
If you take a look at the creation, if you take a look at the universe, there is sufficient evidence to believe that because there is design, there must be a designer. And so anyone who rejects this idea of God willfully does so because the creation declares the glory of the Lord. But they willfully forget. You can talk to folks who have many letters behind their name, PhDs, postdocs, and all the rest, and have a conversation with them, and they know what the Bible says. They know what it says about God as creator and God who will stand, they will stand before as judge, but it says, but they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and earth standing out of water and in the water. They deny that by the word of God, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, one of the hardest struggles for folks is getting past Genesis 1-1. You know, some people ask, well, how could a fish swallow Jonah? You know, being in the belly of a fish for three days, is that even possible? Or people ask questions about other things within the Bible. Well, if you can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the rest of it makes sense. What these individuals deny is the basic tenet that there is a creator and by his word, as the creator, he created the heavens and earth and spoke it all into existence. He's speaking of Genesis 1, 6 through 10 that says, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under... under the firmament or the expanse from the waters which were above the firmament or expanse and it was so and so you have the creation and you have the waters below you have the heavens the sky above and God by his word speaks that into existence verse 8 and God called the firmament heaven so the evening and the morning were the second day then God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called sea and God saw that it was good. The question I've got to ask this morning is, do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Out of nothing, ex nihilio, he created everything. He shaped it and submitted it to his will, his plan, and his purpose, all according to the plan of God. So they deny the creation of God, but also they deny God's judgment through a flood. We keep reading in verse 5, it says, For they willfully forget, or verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with the water. The question is, did God judge the world in the days of Noah and wipe out the people as he judged them and just saved Noah and his family? And this is what it says, they deny that. And if they deny that, they deny a future coming of Christ who will hold every soul accountable. This morning, what gives us the certainty that Jesus Christ is coming back again? The assurance is given by means of the prediction of these scoffers in the last days. The evidence that we are living in the last days are these scoffers. I could give us a few takeaways here. The first one is this. Allow your faith to be strengthened, not shaken, when it comes to scoffers that you run into. My prayer is that as you have conversations about Jesus, the good news of the gospel, as Jesus left heaven for earth, came to earth to die on a cross, a sinner's death, died, was buried 
three days later, rose in newness of life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and promises to come back in glory as people scoff at that, you would be encouraged that that's evidence that Jesus is soon coming back. May your faith be strengthened. May your faith not be shaken. Secondly, we're encouraged to avoid the example of scoffers. Guard your heart towards apathy, towards the return of Jesus Christ. I want to take some time to remind you that these are character traits that mark the heart of the scoffers, not of believers. There are times when we may find ourselves apathetic to the idea that Jesus is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. Don't become apathetic. Be ready. Be prepared. Recognize the urgency that we are not promised tomorrow and Jesus could come back at any moment And we know that as he shows us his mercy and prolongs the day of judgment, we only have so much time left to tell other people about Jesus. Don't become apathetic. There are some of us at times when we question the things of God's word. I'd like to suggest for the folks that you have conversations with who are in the process of deconstructing their faith or question the reality of the truth of God's word, often it's not logical At times, it's moral. And take a look at their life and whether they're submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ because what happens when you end up living a licentious lifestyle, sensual lifestyle, seeking to gratify the desires of your flesh, you start to question whether or not you're going to give an account before God who's coming back again in glory. Take time to consider those things. Guard your heart towards apathy, towards the return of Christ. Secondly, love God more than you love your sin. And then thirdly, affirm what scoffers deny. God created the heavens and the earth. God judged the earth in the days of Noah. And God is coming back to judge the world as we're going to read in the next verse. Thirdly, pray for scoffers because there's still time left for them to repent and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Maybe you have scoffers in your family, among your friends, your co-workers. Take time to continue, to be boldly. Share your faith as God gives you opportunity and take time to pray for them that God would work with the word and the spirit in their hearts and draw them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, don't give others an unnecessary reason to scoff. I'd like to suggest sometimes as Christians we can give the unbelieving world, an unnecessary reason to scoff. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said this, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So no one knows the day when Jesus is coming back again, but there are certainly those throughout history who have tried and given others an unnecessary reason to scoff. There are certain things we can know that the the day of the Lord is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming back again in glory, that we need to be ready and that we need to be prepared. We get to hear about the the, the details that surround the second coming of Christ. We're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. But let me take a moment to read to you some history of how folks have said that Jesus was coming back and he didn't. In AD 160, a man named Monotonous decreed that the new Jerusalem was about to descend from heaven to a field in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Many Christians believed him and waited in the plain on the day he stated. They were, of course, very disappointed. 
As the year AD 1000 approached, many clerics predicted that Jesus was about to return. The appearance of Halley's Comet in 989, as well as other disasters and astronomical events, added to the expectation that the end was near. A few years later, Pope Innocent III believed that if you added 666, number of the beast described in Revelation 13, 18, to the date he believed Islam was founded, you would get the date Jesus would return. The Pope came up with the year 1284. Christopher Columbus, he actually got into it, and he wrote the book around 1500 titled The Book of Prophecies that listed events he thought must take place before Christ's return, calculating the world would end in either 1656 or 1658. In 1831 in America, William Miller, the founder of the Adventist movement, predicted that Jesus would return March 21st, 1844. When that day came and went, he admitted that he was wrong, he had made a mistake, but that Jesus was going to come back October 22nd, 1844. When that date yielded no Jesus either, it was dubbed by the newspaper, The Great Disappointment. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, predicted that Jesus would return in 1914. Russell went on to predict seven other dates this world would end, which all came and went. And then it's hard to top Harold Camping and the late Christian broadcaster who made as many as 13 failed predictions of when Christ would return. You may remember this, the most recent being May 21st, 2011. And when that didn't happen, again, October 21st, 2011, his ministry spent $100 million publicizing this return of Christ that never happened. And that ministry never fully even recovered to this they don't give scoffers a reason, an unnecessary reason to scoff, but know what to say and what not to say. So how can we know Jesus Christ is coming back again? We can be assured by the provision of his word, the prediction of scoffers, and then lastly, this morning, the promise of judgment. Verse 7 concludes our text together. It says this, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly. Folks, what we're promised here is that Jesus is coming back. But he's not just coming back as a suffering servant who came as the Savior the first time. He's coming back as a conquering king to judge the world. He already judged the world in the days of Noah through a flood. But if you recall, he promised he would never judge the world again through a flood. The next time, it's going to be by fire. The question is presented at times, well, is that literal? Is he literally going to destroy the earth with fire? Well, if it was a literal flood, what makes you think it won't be literal fire? In Genesis 9:11, this is what was said, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever you see that rainbow, may you be reminded of the faithfulness of God not to judge the world again through a flood. But know that he will judge by fire. Isaiah 66, 15 to 16 says, Before behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain in the Lord shall be many. 
Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. This morning, I want to remind you, Jesus Christ is coming again. And the day of the Lord is coming The question is, do you have the certainty? Do you have the assurance? If you don't, continue to read his word and study it. Continue to pray that God would enlighten you to the truth therein. Consider the prediction of scoffers and how they're evident on all generations throughout history, throughout church history, and they will become more prevalent as we get closer to the last of the last days and draw nearer to the end times, the end of the world. This morning, be reminded as well that God has promised judgment to come. He's a good judge. And a good judge will not turn a blind eye to the wickedness in the world, but also the wickedness in each of our hearts. Do many of us want God to judge the wicked, judge the evil that's prevalent in the world when the root of every evil is in the heart of men? The Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us miss the mark. We're born into this world with a crooked heart, bent towards rebellion, not obedience to God. We don't seek to serve the Lord. We seek to serve our own desires. But that's why Jesus came, so that we wouldn't have to pay our own debt, so that we wouldn't have to be punished. Jesus went to a cross in order to Forgive our sins, pay our debt, and buy our salvation. This morning, I want to let you know if there's anyone here today who hasn't received the free gift of salvation, the encouragement this morning is don't wait till tomorrow. Receive the gift today. God, the fact of the matter is God already poured out his judgment, the fire of his wrath on Jesus Christ while he hung on that cross. And because the judgment of God was poured out on Jesus, all those who put their faith and their trust in him don't have to experience that same judgment. We have been preserved from it by his grace, his unmerited favor. And so this morning, my prayer is that you would have certainty that Jesus Christ is coming back again and share that with as many people as possible. Can we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for 2 Peter 3 and the reminder about the day of the Lord that we should expect it, that we can be certain that Jesus Christ is coming back again and that is so relevant to our lives. Father, it becomes most relevant when there are those among us here this morning who haven't yet received the forgiveness of sins, haven't trusted in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and you want to give them the gift of eternal life, I pray, Father, that right now in this moment, if there's anyone who's ready, that they would be able to express this genuinely from their heart. Father, I want to come before you today and admit my brokenness, my need for you. I was born into this world not with a desire to serve you or follow you, but to go my own way. My heart has expressed itself in all kinds of ugly ways in my attitudes, actions, and affections. But I know there is only one hope, and it's Jesus. Jesus, I believe, came from heaven to earth and went to to a cross 
to receive my punishment, to pay my debt, and to grant me forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I pray in this days ahead, in the weeks ahead, Lord, that we would live in light of your return, that we would eagerly anticipate the fact that, Jesus, you're coming back again to right every wrong, and indeed, we look forward to that day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.